welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. As a, as a pastor, every now and then, I read a book that I wished that I could make everyone in our faith community read. And uh, one such book is called The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative by Christopher Wright. And uh, it's a bit of a tomb. It comes in at about nearly just under 600 pages. And I'm a realist, and I know most of you don't have the time, and uh, some of you don't have the desire to read it. So very cunningly, I plan to feed the contents of this book to you over the next weeks in sermon form. And you won't know it. But you will be reading with me Christopher Wright's book, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Grand Narrative of the Bible. Uh, You know, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and there's more than one way to feed a congregation. Now, I know that some of you might be thinking, well, Don, I come to hear the scriptures expounded and not simply to engage with some author, some theologian's ideas. Well, Clearly, we will be engaging with the Scriptures. The subtitle of the book is called Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. So permission not to panic, Mr. Manaring. Okay, we will be engaging with the Scriptures. As you come to this book, however, and as I thought, I'm going to unpack this in some sermon form, um, I, I suspect we are liable to encounter a problem almost immediately when we consider one of the title key words of the title, and it's, it's the word mission, because once that word is used, we tend to think in somewhat narrowly prescribed terms. Uh, it's not that it's an unfamiliar term with most of you. Some of you work for organizations with a very well-published mission statement, and somewhere on the wall, it will say something to the effect that this business exists to, and then the mission statement follows. Uh, I I don't know about you, but I I think many of us probably are are a little suspicious about such mission statements. We've been part of organizations where they've been worked on, uh, put on a wall in some prominent place on display, and then promptly ignored in the daily procedures of that organization. So mission statements often don't hold a great deal of weight with us. When we hear the word mission in that context, we're tempted to allow our eyes to glaze over as we saw, yeah, yeah, mission statements, blah, 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 okay? Now, in Christian circles, the word tends to have a very narrow, very limited meaning. And when we hear the word mission, we immediately think of cross-cultural sharing of the gospel. We think missionary, mission society, mission organization. Um, Some people love that subject, of course, and have a real passion for it. Others feel mildly guilty that they don't. Um, I hope it'll bring some relief to the people in the second category uh, when I say that Christopher Wright's book is not primarily about cross-cultural missions and not primarily about missionaries. Um, Wright argues, actually, that the missions... uh, of mission of a cross-cultural variety is not actually primarily what the Bible is about. So when you go to a, 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 a Bible college, you'll often have a course, the biblical base, basis of mission, and they will be 
talking from the scriptures about why we should be uh, sending missions or supporting mission agencies. But what Wright is saying is that the whole Bible actually is a missional phenomenon. And he talks about the need in the early chapters of us as believers having a paradigm shift in our thinking about mission. And we need to see mission, he says, not from the viewpoint of our human agency, but as the ultimate purpose of God himself. So it's not primarily you on mission, it's God on mission. It isn't youth with a mission, it's the missio dei, the mission of God. And so he's suggesting that as we read the Bible, we move from an anthropocentric or man-centered view of mission to a radically theocentric or God-centered view of mission. So that the whole canon actually is a missional phenomenon. And the Bible gives witness to the self-giving movement of an unquestionably personal, purposeful, goal-orientated God toward his creation and toward us as human beings made in his image, but presently wayward and wanton. Okay? I'm going to say that again. The missional phenomenon of the Bible is, uh, it gives witness to the self-giving movement of an unquestionably personal, purposeful, goal-orientated God toward his creation and toward human beings made in his image, but presently wayward and wanton. So when we engage the scriptures, we have to engage the whole story to see it as a missional phenomenon and not just engage with its parts in isolation, which is so often what people do when they read the scriptures. We're guilty of picking up the Bible and reading the isolated parts, the Psalms, the Proverbs, perhaps the Gospels, and what we fail to realize is that all of them fit into a much larger story that unfolds to us the mission of God, the Missio Dei, this purposeful, personal God on a mission. So the Bible is primarily what we sometimes call a grand narrative or a grand story. It's not just a random collection of disconnected stories with proverbs and songs and rules and ethics all thrown into the mix. It is what we call a meta-narrative, an overarching story. In some senses, we say it's a worldview story. Now, like all worldview stories, it claims to explain the way things are, how they came to be that way, and what will be the ultimate end of the story. All worldviews, all religions, all philosophies serve and seek to provide answers to ultimate human questions. Questions like, where are we? Who are we? What's wrong with the world? What's the solution to what's wrong with the world? Where are we headed? What time is it now in that program? And the Bible, as a grand story, as a worldview story, seeks to provide answers to those universal questions. So, for example, to the question, where are we, or rather, what is the nature of the world we find ourselves in, the Bible answers, we inhabit the earth, which is part of the good creation of the one living God. To the question, 
who are we, or rather, what is the essential nature of humanity? The biblical answer is, we are human persons made by this God in his own image. We are one of his creatures, but unique among them in spiritual, moral relationship and responsibility. In answer to the question, what has gone wrong? Why is the world so out of kilter? The biblical answer is that man has turned away from God, rebelled against his word, rejected the relationship he offers, and sought to establish their own independent authority. To the question, well, what is the solution? What can we do about it? The biblical answer is basically nothing in and of ourselves, but the solution has been initiated by God through his choice and creation of a people, Israel, through whom God intends to bring blessing to all nations of the earth and ultimately to renew the whole creation. And that's the, that's the story, the overarching story that answers the deep questions of the human heart and the story stretches from Genesis through to Revelation. I've said this before, but sometimes people liken this story to an act, uh, to a play rather, with a number of different acts. So act one is creation, act two is the fall, act three is redemption, and act four, if you like, is the consummation or the future hope. Now, of course, when you pick up the Bible, perhaps for the first time, that structure might be might, might completely elude you. You might not understand that this is a four-act play, as it were. It doesn't read like a simple, single narrative, like a river flowing with one channel. It's a complex mixture of all kinds of smaller stories with lots of other material embedded in it. In fact, it's not like a river with one flow. It's a bit like a great river delta with multiple channels and streams and Yet within these multiple channels and streams, there is nonetheless clearly a directional flow. Richard Balcham says, the Bible doesn't have a carefully plotted single storyline like, for example, a conventional novel. It is a sprawling collection of narratives. In order to make sense of the mission of God to begin to understand it, we have to see the story, the overall goal in the particulars and, and not lose the overall story as we struggle with the individual stories within it. Now, the Bible as a story is not just a good yarn. It's not just a classic of epic literature, but it is a fundamental rendering of reality. The Bible says this is what's happened. This is where this story is going. It seeks, as I say, to answer those deep fundamental questions that we all ask. Wright says we live in a storied universe. We all live in and are shaped by the stories that we believe, the worldview that we are committed to. Leonard Sweet says we have a storied identity. Now, I know when you talk like this, perhaps some people will be thinking, you know what, I don't know what you're on about. I'm not interested in this thing called philosophy or worldviews. I, j I just live my life. I try and enjoy each moment, and I hope for happiness. Lots of people say that. But I, I want to say to you, if you're human, you are condemned to philosophy, to live as if the big questions don't matter is, in fact, a kind of story. It's a, it's a philosophy. 
It's actually called existentialism or maybe hedonism. It's the story that says, I live for the moment and I live to be happy. I live for pleasure. That is a story. And so that story, if you live within it, shapes the way you do your life. Now, some of you might be responding to all this talk by saying, well, you know what, Don, I'm a postmodern. And I know and have been taught that all the stuff about big stories is just nonsense. It's an attempt to control people. And I don't buy big stories, so I will just live and, and create my own. But, but friends, that is a story. That is a way of relating to reality. The grand story that there are no grand stories is called expressive individualism. And it is probably the most common story in the 21st century West uh, embraced by, by most people. We, we, we live for ourselves. But when you live within that story, your life will be shaped by it. Your life will be shaped by the story that you choose to inhabit. Ian Proven says this, there is no one who does not live inside a story. The only question is, are we going to make an effort to ensure we are governed by the right stories rather than the wrong ones? I, I don't know whether you noticed, but when I put up the answer to the question, what's the solution to the wrongs of the world? Um, many of you will have noticed and, and probably thought to yourself, he didn't even mention Jesus. What's with that? Surely the answer biblically to what is the solution to the problems that we see around us is Jesus, his substitutionary death, his resurrection. You didn't even mention him. Don, that has got to be a massive oversight. You said, and I quote, the solution that has, has been initiated by God through his choice and creation of a people, Israel, through whom God intends to bring blessing to all the nations of the earth and ultimately to renew the whole creation. Where on earth does Jesus fit in that? Well, don't worry. He is front and center. Let me try and explain. There's three great elements to the first part of the story. And the first part of the story, by the way, we tend in, in, our, in our lingo to call the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, there are three great pillars. Number one is the God of the story. Number two is the unfolding story of this people that God has created. And the third thing is that people. Those are the three great pillars of the early part of the story. The God of the story, the story, and the people of the story. Some of you may remember a couple of years ago, I did a series called One God, One Story, One People. In some ways, I'm unpacking that a little further. I want to just say to you that Jesus stands at the very center of those three pillars, the God of the story, the story itself, and the people of the story. Because it is in Jesus that we meet the God of the story. Jesus shares the identity and character of Yahweh and ultimately accomplishes only what Yahweh could. So we find in Jesus the God of the story. It is in Jesus that we find the centerpiece and climax of the story as it unfolds. All of the story leads up to the coming of Jesus, his 
life, his death, his resurrection, and from there, all of the story flows. He is the pivotal point of the whole story. When Paul says, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in him, he was saying everything leads to him and everything flows from him. He's the guarantee of the final end of the story. And then thirdly, not only is he the God of the story, not only is he the centerpiece of the story, but it is through him that we become part of the story, the people of the story. That story becomes our story if we are in Christ. If we are in Christ, then Paul says we are the seed of Abraham. And our future is the future that God promised Abraham. Not only do we share the blessings of Abraham, but we stand commissioned to spread the blessings of Abraham. So those three great pillars, the God of the story, is expressed and manifested to us in Jesus. The climax of the story itself is found in him. And the people of the story, we enter the people of the story in relationship with with him. So the whole Bible is the story of this God on mission. It is the Missio Dei. So Christopher Wright says, from this theocentric starting point, God with a mission, we then can see other dimensions of mission flowing through the Bible. God inviting people, as it were, to enter this mission with him. So the opening chapters of the Bible, we see humanity given a mission. God creates a planet purposefully prepared for their arrival. And the first human couple, Adam and Eve, are given a mission. Fill the earth, keep it, and care for it. By the way, that is very much a priestly task. It wasn't just be gardeners. The terminology involved here is very priestly, where it says in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden and said, tend it and keep it. Later on, when the tabernacle has been created, the priests are told to tend and keep the tabernacle. This is, this is a priestly task that has been given to this first couple. So we find humanity on a mission. Now, we're only a couple of chapters into the story when we see man failing dramatically. Genesis chapter 3. Against then the backdrop of man's subsequent sin and rebellion, which stretches from chapter 3 through chapter 11, after that we find Israel with a mission. The beginning of the call of Abraham happens in Genesis chapter 12. So we have humanity with a mission, failed miserably. God raises up a people in Abraham called Israel, and Israel are on mission. They are brought into existence with a mission entrusted to them from God for the sake of God's wider purposes to bless the nations. Israel's election was not a rejection of other nations, but was explicitly for the sake of the other nations. So election of one is not the rejection of many. It is ultimately for their benefit. It is an instrumental choice of one for the sake of many. I've used this illustration before, but but it's the best I can think of. You know, when I was a school teacher, at the end of each term, I would pick one child from the class, and I would invite them up the front, you know, the others didn't know what was going on. I'd say, hey, Johnny, come here a minute. 
And I'd get $10 out of my pocket and I'd say to Johnny, Johnny, I want you to go down to the local dairy. I've already talked to them. And I want you to buy a box of ice blocks. They've, they've got them ready for them. Pay for them with this, then bring them back. So Johnny would go off, come back with his ice blocks, and then Johnny had the task of then distributing those ice blocks to everybody in the class. And on the last day of term, everybody got an ice block. The picking of Johnny was not a rejection of the rest. The choosing of Johnny, the election of Johnny, was an instrumental choice for the blessing of the rest. The, the classic problem with Israel is they sat down behind the bike sheds and ate all the ice blocks on their own. They didn't realize that they had been elected instrumentally to be a blessing to the nations. They tried to nationalize God and reject the nations. By the time Jesus came, the temple had an outer court that was for the Gentiles, but they had been separated out and, and away from um, the purposes of God. But, but a, a couple of things to note. Number one, just by way of you know, those of you who might be interested, election is not a concept that has to do with salvation. Election is an instrumental choice that has to do with mission to the nations. So when you come to read about election in the book of Ephesians and in the New Testament, and people make it God's electing of a people unto salvation, I'm sorry, but you missed the point. The point of election is not salvation. The point of election is service. And we have to read the foundations of that concept in the new and not read backwards into the old. Um, I, I think at this point in the story, actually, what we could say is that God so loved the world that he chose Israel. Okay, he so loved the world that he chose Israel. Now, most of this older part of the story is about Israel's repeated failure to fulfill their mission. You know, it says in Hosea chapter 1, Israel is a, a fruitful vine that brings forth fruit unto itself. And what Hosea was saying is, you have consumed the ice blocks behind the bike sheds. You have completely missed what God intended to do in and through you. So the massive part of the story in the old, in the old part of it is about Israel's failure to fulfill their mission. So ultimately, into the midst of this people, Israel, a people who failed badly in their mission, came Jesus with a mission. So we had humanity with a mission, we have Israel with a mission, and now we have Jesus with a mission, sent by his Father to do the will of the Father. Where God's corporate firstborn son, Israel, failed in their mission, Jesus, the unique and particular son, came and succeeded where the corporate Israel failed. He became the true Israel. You know when Jesus said, I am the true vine? Most of us just completely read over the top of that. But what that says is this nation, which are pictured throughout the scriptures as a vine, all right, Isaiah chapter 5, Psalm 80, a number of places where the, the nation of Israel are described as being a vine that God planted and looked for fruit from and it was not forthcoming. Here now Jesus in John chapter 15 says, I am the true vine. He's laying claim to Israel's mission. 
He's saying, I am the true Israelite that God was looking for, the promised seed of Abraham that would be a blessing to the nations. The one that Isaiah prophesied and said, you will be a servant who will bring light to the nations. Where that corporate son failed, this individual particular son succeeded. Through his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection, he opens up the possibility of blessing to the nations and the restoration and renewal of creation. Finally, the Bible introduces us to the church with a mission. Folks, the church is nothing less than the multinational fulfillment of the hope of and promise to Israel through Abraham, that the nations would be blessed through them. You and I have been invited into that people. And our mission now is the same one that Abraham had. Through you, you will be a blessing to the nations. The church, some people get really tangled up in this, but let me just say, the church is the expansion of Israel to include the Gentiles, not the abandonment of Israel in favor of the Gentiles. Paul says you and I have been grafted into this olive tree, and and the olive tree is another picture of this people. The the Bible is a story of one God, one story, one people. Now, a, a lot of you have read and probably been significantly influenced by a kind of theology that um, you see in, for example, the Left Behind series. For those of you who have read um, that series of books by Jenkins and LaHaye, and it's built around dispensational theology, which says there are two peoples. There is an earthly people, Israel, that God is really interested in and loves profoundly and dearly, and he sent his son to them, and they rejected him, so God um, sort of created a parenthesis, created some brackets, and then while he's put them on the shelf, he's dealing with another people, and that's the heavenly people, the church, and when he's finished dealing with them, he'll close the brackets, lift them off to heaven, and then he will start dealing with the, the physical people once again, and that theology is pervasive in modern evangelical circles. What, I, what effectively I've been trying to say both in this morning and in that other series that I did is that isn't what the Bible is about. The Bible is about one God, one people, and one story. This is an overarching story that is the story of why things are the way they are, what happened that it went wrong, how God has chosen to fix it, and how he will bring it to an end. And it's one story, and it involves one people. You and I, as believers, are taken into Christ, and because we are in Christ, we are Abraham's seed, we are grafted into that olive tree, And that story becomes our story. It isn't the rejection of that people, it is the expansion of that people. So that people becomes a multinational people. The land that they are promised becomes the whole of the earth. In Romans chapter four, it says that that Abraham inherits the earth. Not just a small portion of land, God intends the whole of the earth to shine forth his glory. And we are invited into into that story. 
This is the story of the Bible. This is the mission that God is on, the Missio Dei. In Luke chapter 24, verse 45 to 47, Jesus entrusts the church with a mission that is directly rooted in his own identity, his passion and his victory as the crucified, risen Messiah. It goes like this. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in Psalms concerning me. Jesus isn't starting a new story. He's telling us that all of the portions of the old story find their yes and amen in him. He's the crucial part of what, of what has happened. He will be the linchpin of what now proceeds from that point. He opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Jesus is deliberately getting his disciples to understand how this story is one story. That what happened in him isn't something absolutely brand new, never even been contemplated before. He's saying it was there. Remember the disciples on the road to Emmaus? Their hearts burned because they suddenly understood the story. Jesus says to the, um, to the Pharisees in John chapter 7, he says, because uh, you, you search the scriptures, but, but you don't see me. I'm, I'm in there. Moses wrote of me. So again, Jesus is saying, This is the story. I'm the God of the story. You are the people of the story. I'm on mission, and I'm inviting you to be part of that mission. So in conclusion, as the musicians come, from the point of view of our human endeavor, mission means this. It is the committed participation of God's people in the purposes of God for the redemption of the whole of creation. That's what God is doing. He made this, he invited man into a mission with him to subdue the earth, to make it a place where the glory of God dwelt. Man fell. He raised up Israel to be on mission so that the blessing that he originally purposed could be spread to all nations. They failed. He sends Jesus on mission. And through his death and resurrection, he opens up the possibility of man being restored to relationship with God and people being restored to their original purposes and the earth being once again redeemed and recreated. And this is where the story is going. And friends, your identity, how you live your lives, because you might be thinking, well, all that's interesting, Don, but how does this affect me? Well, listen, when you live within a story, it shapes you. If you allow 20th, 21st century uh, culture, if you allow their story to shape you, then mostly you will be about having fun, being happy. It really disturbs me when I hear people and, and parents particularly, and, the, and, you, and, and you know, they're talking about what they want for their children. And almost invariably, the one thing they want for their children is to be happy. Well, listen, I'm not suggesting you want them to be unhappy. Of course you want them to be happy, but I hope you want them to be more than happy. I hope that you want them to be part of a story, a bigger story, so that their lives, along with yours, are being shaped with regard to the purposes of God. As I say, so many people in the church 
really don't think about the story they inhabit. They just inhabit one that is passed to them by the culture. Have the most fun you can have. And, and of course, since you're a Christian, try and make it godly. But that's really hard because most of the fun is on the wrong side of the line. Well, that's what our culture tells us. And most of us, or many of us, are deeply impacted and shaped by that. This really has to do with how we live our lives and what story we choose to be shaped by. So that's what Christopher Wright's book's about. At the end of this series, you'll be able to say, I read a 600-page book. Isn't that incredible? At least I hope you will. Why don't we stand? And as the people of the story begin to worship again and afresh the God of our story. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.